Well, hello, Team Rafferty. Oh, it's good we're to so see excited you. to be here with you. Happy excited Mother's Day. Here. Yes, it's good to have you. Happy Mother's Day to both of you ladies, by the way. Just so everyone knows, we do have Team Rafferty in the house and my beautiful wife, as always, and Ethan back there in the corner. Uh, happy Mother's Day almost to you both. I don't think that the people around Mission need an introduction, but for the entire Date Night fam, Kevin and Lindsay have been our friends for nearly... I think it's actually closer to 20 years than 15. I was doing the math. Mm. Kev is a deacon at the church. Lindsay's the director of Mission Academy. And when we planted Mission Bible in 2010, you were the only, <laughs> the only family. <laughs> and um, before that, students in the college ministry. Yes. How old are we? <laughs> I know. We were, we were going back. I was 18 and Kev was 21 when we started oh, going we to the college babies. groups. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's great. And I don't know that I've ever shared this, but literally the same day we decided to plant the church and the elders agreed to it, Lindsay came in and said, we're coming. And didn't oh, yes. you and Kev get married just that year? Yeah. Later? Actually, we, we weren't even married yet. And funny enough, I thought I was getting fired uh, because Pastor Tony kept having all these like backdoor meetings that I didn't know about. Yeah, and every time I walked true. in, everything got really quiet. And I was like, oh, Kev, I'm getting fired. I know it. And <laughs> then he sat me down. He's like, no, Brie and I are just called to plant a church. I was like, oh. So relieved, and Kevin and I are coming. <laughs> What's one memory from the early days? Something nobody else knows that yeah. they've never, you've never told. Something for me is, <clears throat> I, I remember the church uh, planting assessment process oh, where we flew out to Baltimore. That. Yes, and Lynch and I had to, you know, it was pretty stressful because we were just married and then we'd go before this psychologist and he's telling Lindsay like she's naive and she doesn't know what <laughs> life's going to hand her. And you know, it, it was, true. it was interesting. He was, he was right. Yep. <laughs> so what about you? Oh my goodness. There's so many, like the, honestly, I think people don't realize how many terrible offices we've had. <laughs> like it started Panera Bread. That was, was our office. Panera and Bread. Then closets and uh, back rooms, any, honestly, anywhere anyone would let us, but that is that's so where my funny. memories. And you always got too. stuck there in the office. I, did. I would go out and go to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys know how the podcast works. If we do something right, Ethan will applaud us. And so you get ready for that. There you go. If we say something wrong, especially me, then Sproul will yell at us. So what's wrong with you people? <laughs> Isn't Good. that great? I'm serious. Awesome. Were you ready, my love? Yes. Ethan, are you ready? Rafferty's ready? Yes. Let's ready. do this. Okay, well, let's paint the picture. Um, starting off here, Team Rafferty, and let's hear your love story a little bit. Lindsay, you were raised in the Brady Bunch, uh, yes. but Kev, your story was a little bit different than that, right? It was. I was a fourth generation only child, and so my family is much smaller. And so, basically, and when I married, us. yeah, when I married <laughs> Lindsay, I actually married all my brothers and sisters. <laughs> you came into a family of eight, and. Oh, we were loud. Uh-huh. And what a lot of people don't, Kevin has a hearing impairment. And so he has hearing aids. And so when all of us girls would get together, you know, we all talk over each other. We don't even wait for each other to finish a sentence. And we join in on the next one. And you see him in the back just turning down. His hearing <laughs> I'll just tune everything up. There are many men who wish they had that <laughs> oh, impairment. So it's a good. blessing. And when did you guys meet? I know we know this, but mm. when did you know it was meant to be? Yes. So, oh, this one is really fun. I actually met Kev at Starbucks. Do you want to tell this part, honey? Yeah. And and so, you know, some people are like, oh, was it love at first sight? And for us, it was more like awkward at first sight. A bunch <laughs> of old ladies, you know, they bring Lindsay in 
and it was probably the busiest time of the day. The drive-through lines out into the street, managers on the floor, and they're like, "Hey, this is the girl we want you to meet." And I'm like, you know, I, I say hi, and you know, I'm like taking orders and and whatnot. So, but what was interesting was he actually met another Kevin that same day that she ended up. Uh, Dating for about a month, right? I have two Kevins. I had my pick. The other one was a pastor's son and seemed like a way safer bet. So I was like, well, I'll talk to this Kevin. And little did I know, the Lord had other plans and I'd end up with the Starbucks guy. But <laughs> um, six <laughs> weeks, I mean, it's literally our first meeting was so awkward. My mom had been telling our friends like, oh, there's this guy at Starbucks that I think would be perfect for my Lindsay. And so they just thought it'd be so funny to like royally embarrass me um, and try and get us together. And so for six weeks, I would actually drive an additional five minutes down the road to go to a different Starbucks because I was just mortified. <laughs> I never wanted to see him again. And then um, we were, me and my mom were going to a party at a friend's house. And so we stop off at that Starbucks and I see him sitting outside on his break. And I was like, mom, I can't get out of the car. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that guy's there outside. And she's like, oh, Lindsay, don't be ridiculous. He won't even remember you. I'm like, oh, like my pride's hurt a little bit. I'm like, she's right. So I walk out of the car and it's like, ice princess, I am not going to make eye contact. And I go straight in. Oh, yeah. And then good. I remember <clears throat> seeing her, I waved to to um, Lindsay's mom, Pat, and uh, she's like super excited. Then Lindsay's, you know, kind of putting the hand up, walking <laughs> by. And so I ended up briskly, you know, not running, but briskly <laughs> walking into the store, take their order, and, you know, apologize for the first time that we met. And uh, I figured, I don't know if it, it was appropriate to ask. So I said, here's my number, you know, give me a call or text me. And then sure enough, Lindsay's mom's like, well, don't you want her number? <laughs> and I remember kind of looking like, can wow, I have it? Yeah, making it <laughs> happen. So. Yeah. At that point, I just like shrugged. Just I'm like, like someone yeah. marry my daughter. Let's get this thing <laughs> going, right? And that you know, is interesting because you guys were then married. Was it 2010? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Out on the bridge. Beautiful family wedding. Yeah. I still remember it. It was yeah. yesterday. And uh, we were out on the bridge in Corona, mm -hmm. and all of your gals, your sisters had, what was it, colored? Was it, what color dresses were they? No, they were black. They were <laughs> That's black. That's my favorite color. Yeah, yes. yeah. Mal Malficient here, <laughs> getting married. Um, it's true. <laughs> the Wicked Witch of the you, West. You know what's funny about day. that? Because, um, you know, the recession happened not too long before that, and so we were really struggling to find a venue, and I remember coming into our Panera Bread office at that point, and I was super emotional crying, and you had said to me, like, what, what's the matter? And so I explained we couldn't find a venue, and you finally were just like, well, what's the most important thing? And I was like, I just want to marry Kevin, and you're like, well, go do that. So literally, we called 50 of our closest friends and family and said, Hey, meet us at the bridge at this time. We're getting married. Yeah, it was sunset. Yeah. Oh, and over the years, I'll tell you, all the weddings I've ever done, those tend to be the most beautiful. Mm. They're just, they're all about God. They're all about family. And then you can take the however much money and put it towards a down payment. <laughs> so it yeah. works. Mm -hmm. But there really is a natural rising action there because Lindsay is coming from what we used to call Barnes Land. And you've got all these mm. siblings. You're out on a farm for a while. You had horses and ducks and geese and whatever. Um, and you were a puppet master as well. That's something nobody I knows. Was. You do puppets. Your family did puppets. You go to like Johnny Erickson, taught at camps yep. and Royal Family yep. Kids and Serve Kids. Your whole life was about kids. Yeah. But then that's not the way you had a picture in your mind of what it would mean for you. I'm sure you even grew up caring for your sisters, caring for doll babies. Oh, totally. But yeah. that's not the way it worked after you and Kevin got married. Right. Well, and I, I, you know, 
Kev, I converted him to big family life, you know, fourth generation only child here. I'm like, we're going to have eight kids. He's like, one. I'm like, yeah, no, like, we're going to have, we're going to have eight. And he's like, okay, two. And I got him up to three. I was like, well, I'm doing pretty good. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, we were married and a couple years into marriage, we started to try and conceive and, um, you know, nothing was happening. So a year went by and then I started to meet with my OB and just begin that workup process is what they call it to find out, okay, are there any natural reasons why um, we're struggling? And all my tests came back normal. What, what was it? Was there an official diagnosis or a medical explanation? No, not for me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, that was hard. Um, you know, I just kind of assumed I'd be just like my mom. I mean, my dad looked at my mom and she got pregnant. <laughs> like, of course, you know, I'm going to be just like her. And so, yeah, it that was the first kind of shock. Yeah. And I would say about for another year, we did continu continue to pray and try to conceive. And, um, you know, Lindy taking even taking medication to kind of help improve chances of conceiving. Um, in addition, I even went to a male infertility specialist and again, everything came back normal. And I, we were talking at that point, we we're like, we just want some kind of diagnosis, something that kind of is like, oh, okay, well, you know, this is the reason why. And, and both of us with our results, it's like your unexplained infertility, which is about, I think, 5% of people that um, can get that kind of diagnosis. So, and that's that's kind of what led us down to a road, like, well, what, what's the next step there? What do we do? Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, you're married, what, five years-ish? Mm -hmm. Is that right? You've been trying for two years to Correct. have children. Take us in, because there are lots, it's Mother's Day, there's lots of women around the world and their husbands who have been trying. They've been unable to have kids. Take us into some of the, just the emotions that maybe a lot of people don't know about, uh, where we show up at church, and we know someone is maybe not having a child as quick as we would have thought, but we're not quite sure what's going on behind the scenes. What's that like? Yeah, um, it can honestly feel really overwhelming and very lonely. Um, you know, the statistics say that one in every four couples will struggle with infertility. Um, I'm sure when you consider secondary infertility, which means they got pregnant once, but then afterwards they struggled to conceive again, the numbers are probably higher. So um, in reality, what we were going through was not unique. Um, a lot of couples do, but there's just not a lot of talking about it. And I think um, oftentimes you can be asked, what is meaning to just be a kind comment? When are you guys going to have kids? And it's like, oh, what you don't know is we've been praying for two years, you know? And so sometimes people don't want to share their struggling because um, it can be embarrassing. You know, I think for women, um, that stigma of being infertile or barren, it's just that word is such a harsh word. Um, and so it can be really hard. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office and, and when he told us like, all right, they're you guys have unexplained infertility. Your options are IUI or IVF. And we just drove home, and I was crushed by that diagnosis. I just felt um, such this desperation to need to know why. I just wanted an answer from the Lord. We had already begun to talk about, you know, maybe pursuing adoption, and it was something we really wanted. But I so desperately wanted to, um, you know, have our own kids, in air quotes. Um, and I felt like I couldn't move on without knowing a reason why God wasn't allowing us to conceive. Um, and so when he gave that unexplained infertility diagnosis, it was like, you're not ever going to know. And you got to trust that. And so mm. that was a really hard moment. And 
as we were talking about adoption, the thing that I kept coming back to is, but I can't bear the thought of going through the process and then having it not work out and losing that child. And then where it really turned for me was watching Mark and Chelsea Anderson go through losing their baby girl, Jocelyn Grace. And I know you guys have had them on your podcast and watching the way that they handled that, uh, the Lord really transformed my heart. And I realized even if you have children biologically, you're not guaranteed any length of time. The Lord is the author and sustainer of their life. And whether that is one day on this earth or their whole lifetime until, you know, you as your parent go to glory before them, um, we can trust them to the Lord. And so that was kind of a, a big eye-opener to learn that we can trust the Lord with them. What about you, Kev? Yeah, so that that was interesting because as a husband, you know, we're supposed to uh, wash your wives in the word, and, and it seemed like no matter what I did, it was just there was that emotional um, barrier that I could just never figure out how to get past. And, and so um, through, you know, prayer and counsel and, and other friends that were going along <clears throat> through infertility as well. So we've been, both began to look um, into, you know, fostering to adopt and other different options um, as we, you know, continue this journey. So, Were there any times where you kind of thought, you know, Lord, I don't know how to help my wife. I can't serve her here. I don't know what to do. She's kind of at her end. Mm-hmm. I'm at my end. Do you remember any of those times? Yeah, there was there were several occasions where, you know, it was... It, yeah, even even praying with her, just you could feel like there's this this kind of separation. Not that we we're gonna, you know, divorce or anything, but there was just there was this tension that, and you know, as husbands, we want to be able to the people that want to go in and fix things, and and there's nothing that you could fix. It was just you had to completely rely on God at this point, and um, you know, in in stories in the Bible where uh, people were barren as well, and it's like you can only imagine what they were feeling back then. And so when it was considered a curse, right? Exactly. And so, um, you know, fast forward 2000 plus years, uh, we're going through this. And I think when we were kind of first diagnosed with this, we felt like we're the only people going through this and slowly, you know, we started to realize like, Oh, this is actually like a problem with others as well. And so I think just being able to, learn how to share your story and also come around other couples that are going through the same thing and say, Hey, we're not the only ones out here. Mm. Um, and always go back to the fact that like, you know, as Lindsay said, God is the author and perfecter and creator of life. And that's what we have to, um, continue to rely on. That's really good. So I want to segue right there into a couple of storylines. Um, you know, one of them being IVF and embryo adoption, the other being uh, real adoption. You know, but first, because this is such a sensitive issue, I want to let everyone know that we are aware, um, as much as we can be, of the ethical issues surrounding IVF um, and how Christians hold nuanced views, including how the technology continues to develop and how our biblical worldview shapes the interface with science. So let me just say, for sake of ultimate clarity, and I know Kevin and Lindsay are going to back me up here, Brie, I, Kevin, and Lindsay hold unapologetically that life begins at conception and is precious um, and to be protected, meaning anything that we discuss today as morally permissible is working directly from that premise. And if we don't cover something that you have questions on, we actually have a mutual friend, Dr. Jeremiah Chang, uh, who is a doctor with embryo adopted twins, and he writes articles on this topic at, I think it's foreknownandcreated.com. And so if you want more information or data, 
um, and you can't track down Kevin and Lindsay, uh, that is another option for you to look into. And one other helpful disclaimer for Christians is that the in vitro field is largely run by the medical establishment with secular worldviews, meaning embryos which aren't found to be viable or nobody wants will be discarded as leftover products, which we would consider as murder. Yeah, and I think that is probably the perfect place to begin for anyone listening who goes, I'm not even sure I understand everything that goes into IVF and embryo adoption. Um, Would you guys be willing to kind of give us a broad picture perspective on what IVF is and kind of just give us a a 360 on the field at large? Yeah, happy to. Um, So with the advances of the assisted reproductive technology, it's most commonly known as IVF, in vitro fertilization. Um, Frequently, couples will come to fertility clinic doctors. Um, They've struggled to conceive naturally, and so they'll go through the process where uh, the woman will either, you know, take hormones and medication to grow um, a lot of eggs, and then they'll go in and harvest those eggs, literally take them out of her, put them in a Petri dish, and then collect a sperm specimen either. And sometimes this can happen from donors. Um, They can get donor eggs and donor sperm, so you have multiple people now involved in the making process of this child. And then the doctors will take the egg and the sperm and fertilize, and that's where we get the embryo. It happens at fertilization. It becomes, the more technical term is a zygote. It is a unique uh, DNA human being. It's unique from the DNA of the sperm and the egg. And so um, what IVF doctors tend to push is the harvesting of as as many eggs as you possibly can get because it is a painful process and it's very expensive. Um, We're talking 40 grand plus for one round. Um, And so... They want to provide their clients with as many potential options to try and get a baby as they possibly can. And so um, in 1978, the first test tube baby was born, and that started the embryo donation uh, program. But so what happened was there were these... um, you know, families coming in, creating embryos, and they had all these leftover embryos because they got their one or two, you know, 2.5 kids, and they didn't want any more. Um, and so what do, what do they do with all these leftover embryos? Well, fertility doctors were just handing them out to other clients who were willing to accept them, but they weren't keeping records of, you know, which embryos went to which family. So you just begin to see this family unit of children, siblings created, being split up into all these different places across the country without tracking medical histories or where siblings went. So um, really, it was almost near impossible to track family members down, biological family members, until the advent of, you know, 23andMe or DNA databases like we have now. Um, And so in 19, what is it, 97, uh, Christian Nightlight Adoptions pioneered the embryo adoption program. And amazingly, on October 31st of 2022, twins were born to their adoptive parents who had been frozen for 30 years. They were frozen in 1992. Their father, Philip, said this, and I love it. He said, I was five years old when God gave life to Lydia and Timothy, and he has been preserving their life ever since. So I don't mean to cut you off, but let me just try to... For all the simpletons like me out there who are hearing the technical language, try to help us all understand what you just shared. Because basically you're saying the egg and the, there's egg and sperm collection. Mm-hmm. The egg is then fertilized by the sperm outside of the womb, mm-hmm. obviously. The child grows, what, three to five days? And yeah. then is genetically tested or cryopreserved. And then there's an embryo transfer into the woman's uterus. Mm-hmm. And then the basically the child either then, it, it takes, and quote, and it grows, it, he or she grows, 
And then the unused child, the embryo that's not used, they're frozen and then thawed if and when they want to be used in a later cycle or yes. by somebody else. You're saying that they'll have you do that 10, 12, 14 times. They'll harvest as much as they can, even though only one or two will actually be used. All those other children then are sitting somewhere in a yeah. freezer. Yeah. And then there was one that this guy, he was five years old, mm-hmm. grows up and actually then takes one. Help us, help me understand that picture. Yeah. So they were a family who adopted embryos. Adopted were, embryos. Yeah, they were frozen 30 years prior. And so back when he was five years yeah, old, yeah, he was just five. There was this couple wow. doing IVF and little did they know 30 years later, they would give their embryo leftover embryos up to a family who would adopt them and give them a chance at life. So there wow. are organizations out there and we're kind of jumping ahead. We can talk about that in a little bit, but there yeah. are organizations out there who say, listen, you don't just discard and quote murder these leftover yeah. babies. You know, we need to get them adopted, yeah. and that's embryo adoption. Absolutely. And gotcha. what a lot of couples, I think, don't realize going into IVF, I mean, no one goes through IVF who doesn't want a baby, right? They cherish, they've wanted this for so long, but what they kind of don't tend to think through often, and doctors don't help families think through, is what do you do with the potentiality of having leftovers? Mm. You don't want 17 kids and be that reality TV show family, so um, often they're like, well, you can just freeze them and decide later. But eventually that decision has to come. And, um, you know. And I believe there's also like a a certain fee per year to actually keep the embryos frozen too. So they're paying whatever it is. I don't know if it's like four or six hundred dollars a year. So where are these, I'll I'll just make up words, cryo chambers. You know, where where are these vaults? Because if there is tens of thousands, they're called cryobanks, where are they and who runs them? And then there would have to be a fee. Mm -hmm. And if you don't pay your fee, then I'm assuming then they just. Get rid of the children. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a well-oiled machine. Uh, The embryos are stored in these things. They're called canes. They look like little straws, and they normally put, you know, two to four embryos in each straw, and then they put them in a case that kind of looks like R2-D2, and they're either stored at the fertility clinic that helped create them, or they send them to special cryobanks is what they're called, Um, and they can stay there indefinitely. What we've learned is, yeah, it doesn't matter how long the embryos have been frozen, if given a chance to thaw in a, a, a nice hospitable womb to grow in, they will grow into fully healthy, normal human beings. Mm-hmm. So every baby is either transferred into mom's uterus in the next cycle, given to science or in quote discarded, which we would say is murdered mm-hmm. or placed up for embryo adoption. Yes. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. So they can either keep them frozen indefinitely um, Uh, donate them to science, which means they'll be experimented on and then eventually destroyed, um, allowed to just thaw and destroy, or um, given up for adoption. Right now, there are 60,000 embryos currently waiting to be adopted. There are, it's estimated, over a million children frozen. Mm. Um, I'm sure the numbers are higher than that. Is that when they do genetic testing? Do they only keep the highest... Graded children. I, that sounds horrible to say, but yeah, no. Um, usually, in the beginning, when they're first fertilized and they're growing, the embryologist will watch them closely, and it's not a subjective grading. They'll really look and see how are the cells multiplying, um, the cell structures. How how healthy is it looking? Is it behaving normally, or does it look like it's behaving with a genetic abnormality? Um, and then they'll give them gradings of A, A, B. You know, A is the best, C and D are not so good. Um, but what we've seen is even if an embryo gets a poor grading, a poor grading, um, if given the chance to be implanted, they'll successfully grow into a human life. So um, once you've created those, the 
embryologists and the IVF doctors usually push to only implant those that are most viable. Um, but what is hard about that is embryos that are of poor quality normally don't survive um, being frozen. Uh, their DNA will get damaged and more than likely the embryo will be destroyed. And something that's interesting is like what even, you know, when I was learning about this was when they, I'm like, well, what happens when, you know, you pull the embryos out? Like how does, how does that thawing process work? And so um, it only takes about one to two minutes. And then the survival rate ranges, ranges from 50% to 85%. And so embryos that do not survive thaw were usually damaged during the freezing process. So it's not necessarily the thawing process mm -hmm. that like, in quote, damages these embryos. It's actually going into the, the freezing process. Gotcha. And I think a question that sounds heartless, but I, I think needs to be asked is when a, an embryo is graded C or D, who's going to ever want that embryo? Right. Well, and as adopting prospective adoptive parents, you have to work through in your own heart. How do we choose? Right. You know, right. where are, what's our criteria? Are we not willing to accept a genetically, um, disadvantaged child right you know so you're seeing abnormal abnormalities you know what they are all the way it could be genetic well, structure it could be what is it down syndrome you, you might know things plausible things about that child and and who is going to be willing to to take that child i'm assuming most do not well what was interesting with um the agency that we went through they actually gave the full medical history in some scenarios it was a sperm donor and a egg donor. <clears throat> so we had to have medical histories for two completely different people. Um, so if that makes sense where it's like this yeah, family's yeah. like, we don't have viable, you know, on either side. So we have to do a sperm donor and an egg donor into that family unit. So now we have the couple and then, you know, a male and a female outside of that. And so you have to get medical history going back into the donors and, you know, they'll, pick out anything from schizophrenia, um, any any people with uh, cancer, stuff like that. So you'll potentially know ahead of time um, if a certain embryo is could be exposed to, to you know certain genetic factors. Mm -hmm. Which is where the deep ethical challenges begin mm -hmm. to come because you almost have selective breeding. Mm -hmm. And then you also end up eugenics. with a secular so, worldview. Is it eugenics? And then in a secular worldview, you're really, I mean, for them, it's nothing. It's just a moneymaker. It's a product. It's not a, a life. So for them, this is the way it should be. But for a Christian, you immediately are confronted with what you really believe about life at conception and what you're going to do with that, mm -hmm. which is why IVF is such a challenging field. Absolutely. Is that fair? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Okay. It makes my heart hurt to think about all of these lives literally being made and held. Mm -hmm. Like even the fact that, like the gentleman said, that for 30 years, that these are actual babies that are, are, are just frozen in time, yeah. so to say. Um, but you guys found something very interesting. I think this is a really perfect solution to all the challenges that come here called snowflake adoption, yeah. which you alluded to earlier. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Mm, I love it. So Nightlight Christian Adoption Agency has a program called the Snowflake Program. It exists to empower couples with remaining embryos to choose life and for these embryos to be selected by adopting parents. Um, Snowflake is all about hope. Their staff is amazing. By the end of 2022, their program will have helped um, 
place children and give birth to over 1,000 babies, Mm -hmm. which is just amazing, who were previously frozen and been adopted. Uh, The Snowflake program has been helping with embryo donation and embryo adoption since 1997. It is the oldest and most experienced adoption agency in the world. Um, Another one that's highly recommended is the National um, Embryo Donation Center, uh, which I know Dr. Chang and his wife went through. Um, And I I love that uh, there is this possibility. So many Christians don't know about embryo adoption. I know just a few years back, we didn't know about it, but it is such a um, such a beautiful thing to be able to give life, and there are so many children. Um, you know, if you go through other more traditional adoption um, avenues, the timeline can take a very long time. There's a long wait list. This, I mean, like I said, there are sixty thousand waiting to be adopted, and so um, it's it's a very real need. And Lynn, can you speak to the sisters out there why this could be an option for them? Hmm. Well, um, I think one of the things that is um, most appealing is the chance that you'll actually be able to carry your baby. Um, you'll get to experience pregnancy. Uh, for some of us, it sounds terrifying um, who haven't gone through it, but um, one thing that I learned was even though genetically you don't share DNA with that embryo, that embryo growing inside of you, your pl- the placenta, your blood, it actually will um, impact what DNA traits are stronger in that child. And um, it's just such a beautiful thing to be able to give life. And so um, it can be an answer for sisters who um, are struggling with infertility and IVF is something that their conscience and convictions has said no to, but still get to experience pregnancy. So that's beautiful. So honest questions, Kev, you could probably speak into this because I know that the the brothers out there are probably thinking to themselves, this sounds very expensive to me. I mean, bring us into the more practical. Um, is is it expensive? Are there guarantees? Um, and then even you mentioned like the history and bio parents. Are there interactions that you may have down the road with them? Speak to that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, as men, we're always thinking like, what's the price and and whatnot. And even just regular adoption or even international adoption that you know that can get upwards of fifty thousand or, mm. or more. Um, and so when we went down this route, we were, you know, contemplating because it's, we can transfer multiple embryos during one transfer, if that makes sense. And so not that we're trying to save money here, but we're, you know, for one transfer and to, for one adoption of a set of embryos, like say a family says, hey, I have seven embryos that are up for adoption. Um, and you decide to take that on. Well, how do you then you're like, how do I want to split that up? Do I want to do like uh, several transfers of two and three or um, uh, things like that also come into play? And so I think with us all said and done, it was over $10,000. I want to say close to 17, 18,000. Sure. But we did do two different transfers and two different adoptions. So we adopted. Um, a total of four embryos. So the first adoption was two embryos. We transferred those. Uh, actually, wait, I take that back. We did three transfers. We did one embryo at a time for the first adoption. The second adoption of two embryos, we did both uh, embryos at the same time. And so that's kind of the breakdown with um So it's expensive, price. but yeah. it's nothing compared to, mm-hmm. like nope. you said, 
international adoption, right. which our friends who've done that, I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're 10,000 just to do the paperwork. Exactly. And then you've got what a six month or two year process yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does total 30 to 40,000 or more. And then if you fly over there too, you're you like, flying you two, gotta, three times. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And dealing with bureaucracy in China, which does not sound fun. Okay. I, and I don't mean to make like a big transition here, but I do want to move the story forward just a little bit to kind of scene three here. Um, it was around, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, May of 2017, which Lindsay, you've always called this like, I think the night of surrender. Is that the right mm-hmm. term? It's mm-hmm. like this big, you know, dark night of the soul. Yeah. Kev, you were often on business in Europe. In Switzerland. Yeah. Switzerland. Yes. And then tell us a little bit about that big moment and what happened. Yeah. Um, so as you know, as we've shared, we were still trying to conceive. Um, we got the unexplained infertility diagnosis and Kev was away. So, you know, timing, it meant there was going to be another month where we weren't going to have the opportunity to get pregnant. And, um, when you're struggling with infertility each month, it feels like, you know, it could be the end of the world. Um, the hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so with each month when there was a no, um, uh, it just really was crushing. And so I was alone um, at my kitchen table, and it was just one of those, like, dark nights of the soul moment. And I just began to weep, and, you know, I'm hopeless. I don't know what to do. And so um, I crack open my Bible, and I just happened to be reading Psalms 127. I'm sure everyone knows that verse. I did not know that verse at the time. And I read, and it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain to rise up early, to go to bed late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his rest. Oh, those words just pierced my heart. I had been eating the bread of painful labor for years, trying to figure out how I can make this happen, um, even in my own strength. And I just knew at that moment that I needed to surrender. I was not trusting the Lord to build our family. And so I repented. Um, I asked the Lord to forgive me, and I submitted to whatever he saw fit for our family. And in the back of my mind, I was like, but just not 60 years of childlessness. Like, Mm. how can I bear that, God? Mm. How can I go through life giving you glory when I'm so unsatisfied? And, you know, Proverbs is very, very clear that there are four things that are never satisfied and five that never say enough. And the barren womb is one of them. And I'm like, Lord, this is something that you made in us women. Biologically, we we yearn for this. It's partly why we were created. So how can I deny this feeling of being unsatisfied? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it's like, but those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are promised by Christ to be satisfied in heaven. And so began that mental shift for me of, not desiring children above desiring God's will for my life. Amen. And really, I mean, that was idolatry. And so um, coming to grips with it, realizing that I had idolized that in my life and put it before the Lord. And when Kev came home, and we were talking about it, he said he could, he could see a difference in me, that I had truly, mm-hmm. not that I would never struggle with it again, but I had really laid that down to the I, Lord. I love that. And it was soon after that you guys signed up for a foster care training, right? It was. So he comes home and I share all these things and we just begin to pray and ask the Lord, okay, to desire children is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And so God, if you continue to give us this desire to build our home, then we're going to just take one step at a time and see what doors you open. And we had friends who were going through foster care training. And so we thought, all right, we're going to, we're going to jump in. 
So. Yeah, we decided to hop on board. And so, you know, foster care training, just some quick stats there. It was five, maybe six, three-hour trainings. Um, there was like a full Saturday CPR class. Um, the home study, which was pretty in-depth. Um, there, were, You know, we were in a townhome with, I think, four flights of stairs. So you need baby gates um, on each, you know, section of the stairs. Cabinet locks everywhere. Gates, yeah. Like you had to put your knives up in a cabinet locked away somewhere. So anyways. You were so, never allowed to ride a motorcycle again. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it would have been. Yeah. That's basically the end of your life. Yeah. It would have been sad. But we did it and we finished in August and we were certified foster parents. Now take us into that moment. You're certified. Yeah. This is one of those, you know, just these great historic kind of milestone memories. August, is it 19th? Yes. The crib is set up. You finished all your foster care training. Yeah. You have had your you know dark night of the soul. You finished your foster care training. You're sitting there with a crib set up in the evening, twiddling your thumbs. And then just tell us what happened next. Well, we were just waiting for a phone call from our foster care agency. And the next day was a Sunday morning, August 20th. And my mom and dad, who had been traveling to Seattle, called. And she's like, hey, Lynn, um, we're going to come by your house after church when we land. I'm like, great. I'm assuming they're going to give us a Washington onesie, right? So I'm like, oh, fun, come on over. She's like, well, here's the thing. I'm going to bring my friend. I'm like, wonderful, I'd love to meet your friend. Well, here's the thing, Lynn. Um, so uh, my friend's 16 weeks pregnant, and she wants you to adopt her baby. Well, we are only halfway through our incredible interview with Kevin and Lindsay, and their story only continues to get more beautiful, doesn't it, my love? Yes, it's so beautiful. <laughs> Any I love takeaways them. from part one with them? I think just eye-opening. We've all heard terms like IVF and embryo adoption, mm -hmm. but to actually understand the technology and ethics involved, it was truly a blessing. I agree. Well, hey, Date Night fam, we're going to be back next week with part two, and you're going to get to meet the little surprise that was waiting for Team Rafferty on August 19th of 2007. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this Mother's Day, we pray for those that are desiring children. Please comfort them. Please guide them and hear their cry. For the perfect answer at your perfect time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Date Night fam, have a most blessed Mother's Day, and we will be back in a week. Please leave a review and send a message. Special thanks to Kevin Linz, Ethan, and the wonderful people at Mission Bible Church. Until next time, keep living for the gospel and fighting for the family. Thank you.